Let's pray. Father, again, we're so thankful for this morning. We're thankful for this time that we may be in your word, to open up your word, to be refined and challenged and encouraged in your word, Lord. And we pray, Lord, this morning that as we listen to what you have to say, Lord, that we can just give you all the glory, Lord, that it will challenge our lives to live more and more for you and for your glory. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. All right. Bruce is uh, at a family wedding uh, this weekend, and so he gave me the wonderful privilege of uh, just bringing the Word of God to you guys, and so I'm excited to do that. Uh, last night I was, you know, I, I'm glad that the sun is out. Hopefully, hopefully it doesn't go away too much uh, because I hate the cold. I get really cold very easily. And so I'm with my wife and I'm, I'm telling her like, hey, I can wear this sweater or this like hoodie so I can keep myself warm. And she kind of looks at me and, and said, uh-uh, no. And I said, well, I was like, what's, what's, what's wrong with that? And she's like, no, you're wearing the black jacket. And I understood at that moment in time, it wasn't a suggestion, it was a command. <laughs> All right. Uh, <laughs> so here I am with the black jacket. Uh, hopefully it keeps me warm enough as we go through uh, the sermon. Uh, but I have the wonderful privilege again. Uh, Pastor Bruce has been going through just a series on why doctrine matters, why doctrine is important for our life. And I get to preach on the doctrine of Scripture today, the doctrine of Scripture, why, you know, what we have in the Bible, what it is, the nature of Scripture, and, and just why we should believe in it, really. Um, and so with that, go ahead and just turn to 2 Timothy. Just kind of keep your thumb there. We're going to be all over the place. We're going to start in 2 Timothy, but we're going to kind of jump around uh, in the scriptures just a little bit to kind of understand this, this topic of the doctrine of scripture. Now, again, some of you may know my testimony, may, know not, may or may not know, but uh, it was in high school when I was first introduced to really church right? Jesus Christ, the gospel, everything. It was, it was introduced to me in high school. One of my best friends in my junior year brought me to the youth ministry, and that's kind of where I heard everything. And, you know, it, again, that's where the journey started. It was really where college where things started to kind of come together, but again, started there. And I remember distinctively in high school, there was this one class, one history class. I, I, it's burned in my memory forever. I, I still remember it to this day, like as if I was sitting in the class, but the, the history teacher, it was one particular day, he was teaching on kind of like church history a little bit. That was kind of where we were at in the time period. And he was talking about the Bible, the, the making and the production of the Bible. Now, some context, this teacher was by no means a Christian, uh, far from it to be exact. And he's there teaching this class, and he basically says, you know, about the Bible, uh, don't you guys all know that the Bible was, was copied thousands of times, copied over and over and over again. What you have in your hands is a copy of the Bible. And he goes on to say, like, there was no real standards really in the ancient times to ensure that the practice of the copying of Scripture was accurate. No one was overseeing it. Really, at the end of the day, anyone could have taken away, added stuff, edited things out of the Bible. And no one would be none the wiser. No one would know. No one could stop them. At the end of the day, the Bible is a book made by man. No way is it God's word. It's a book full of myths. No real historical value. 
It's really just a book to help people have some hope. And those people who need that kind of hope are the people who have no brains. I remember this in the class. And I remember as he said this, no one responded. No one really said anything. No one raised their hand. No one challenged him. Some people in the class uh, were in that youth ministry that, that was there that brought me and, you know, my, my Christian friends. And they didn't say anything. They didn't challenge him. And that event stuck in my mind so much because it, it, started, to, it started this journey for me to kind of ask the question, well, what is the nature of the Bible? Can we trust the Bible and everything it says? Are there really errors in the Bible? Is it really true that only fools believe in Scripture? Again, for the past two weeks, Pastor Bruce has eloquently shown why doctrine matters. What we believe the Bible says ultimately affects the way we live our lives. The Bible is the source for us to understand the gospel, to understand Jesus Christ, to understand our need for salvation, how we are to live our lives to the glory and worship of God. But really, we have to take a step back now to ask the all-important question, well, what does the Bible say about the Bible? If we're going to place really all our eggs in one basket, in the basket of the Bible, we, we ought to know the nature of Scripture. We ought to know what the Bible says about itself. We ought to be able to really answer the question, is the Bible riddled with errors? Is it a fool's book? Or is it where we find life? Is it where we find the gospel? Is it where we find the true meaning of why we're here and how we ought to live our lives? And so again, this morning, I'm going to try to tackle what is called in the theological world, the doctrine of Scripture. I have two goals this morning. Two goals this morning. First, I want to provide a, a kind of a basic apologetics, really a, a basic defense of why we can trust the Bible. Why we can trust the Bible. It's, it's going to be basic. It's going to be um, just kind of brief almost. And then, you know, obviously, if you want to learn more, we can expand on that in another day. And secondly, what I want to do is I want to show, as I show some of the basics of the doctrine of Scripture, I want to show the extreme relevance it has for your life. Not just today, not just tomorrow, but the rest of our lives until Jesus returns. And so we'll see three aspects of the doctrine of Scripture, three aspects. They're all important. They're, they kind of logically follow one after the other. First, we'll see the, the authority of Scripture. And from that, we'll then see the inerrancy of Scripture. And then from those two points, we get to our final, the sufficiency of Scripture. The authority of Scripture, the inerrancy of Scripture, and the sufficiency of Scripture. And so with that, the authority of Scripture. Pastor Bruce, a little bit last week, he talked about um, in 2 Timothy 3, chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. That's kind of where we'll start there. He talked about how this few verses talks about Scripture. I'm going to expand a little bit on what he said. It reads again, starting in verse 16. All Scripture, the Bible, is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Now, what's most relevant for our 
purposes this morning, the authority of Scripture, is that first portion in verse 16, that all Scripture is breathed out by God. In other words, the ultimate author of Scripture is God himself. While it is true that God used men to write Scripture, the origin is God and God himself. In 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 21, you don't have to turn there, I'll read it for you. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 21, it says, For no prophecy, speaking about Scripture again, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. What is clear is that God is the author. Yes, Paul wrote 2 Timothy. Yes, Paul wrote Ephesians, Colossians, Philemon, and whatnot. But God used Paul. He used Peter in 1 and 2 Peter to write down his words. Right? And so it's clear again that Scripture is God's word. He is the author. Now, to be fair, in 2 Timothy 3.16, you might be thinking while you're looking at it, go, well, wait a minute. It says scripture, but is it referring to the whole entire Bible? Because if you know the timeline, there are books that haven't been written yet. Revelation hasn't been written yet. First, second, and third John haven't been written yet. Okay. And so naturally, so on context, right, the, the word scripture there is referring to the Old Testament. It is referring to the entirety of the Old Testament. However, we can trust 2 Timothy 16 unequivocally and authoritatively because God is speaking through Paul to say, hey, the Old Testament is authoritative. And not only that, again, in 2 Peter chapter 3, Okay, in chapter 1, Peter said God uses people to write his scripture. Then in chapter 3, verses 15 and 16, he says this. He says this, listen. And count the patience of the Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do other scriptures. So here Peter is talking about Paul's letter, how other people take what Paul says and really twist what it says, right, and, and use it for their own gain, not understanding the context, not understanding that God is its author and there's only the, interpre- the only true interpretation is God's interpretation, and they twist it. And then he says... And that's all scripture. They're taking Paul's letter and they're twisting scripture, just like they twist the Old Testament sometimes. And so here Peter equates everything that Paul has written, as we have in our New Testament, with the Old Testament. In other words, we ought to understand, and what the Bible is saying about itself, is that both the Old Testament and New Testament is God's word. He is the ultimate author of this book that we have in our very hands. And so so essentially, all these 66 books are God's word to us today. So what does this all mean, though? Okay, God's the author. Okay, that's great. We know the author of the book. But what does that all mean? How is it relevant for us that the Bible is God's word? And again, it goes to our point. It means that the Bible is our authority. 
It is the authority because God is its author. God who is the creator, the creator of the universe, our creator. He is the one who gave us this Bible. Therefore, this Bible comes with his authority. So the authority of scripture means for us then, we submit to everything that it says. It means that if the world or our friends or whoever ask us or request of us to do something that is contrary or in contradiction to the Bible, we must reject such requests. We must reject such ideas or concepts and submit only and believe only in the authority of the word of God. Nothing in this world can surpass that authority. Nothing in this world can compare itself to the authority of Scripture. The Bible stands at the top alone. For God stands at the top alone. One helpful definition that I have found, very helpful by one scholar by the name of Rain Grudem, he says this, he writes this, the authority of Scripture means that all the words in Scripture are God's words in such a way that to disbelieve or disobey any word of Scripture is to disbelieve or disobey God. I find that very illuminating. To disbelieve or disobey the words of Scripture the Bible we hold in our hands is to disbelieve and disobey God himself. For he is its author and it bears with his authority. I remember, you know, growing up, uh, my brother and I, when we, when we got old enough, when we got old enough to be home, home alone to kind of take care of ourselves, uh, my dad left us home all the time. Okay, so this was somewhere around high school. I believe I was a freshman maybe mid-freshman, my brother was a junior, and my dad would leave us home starting at about maybe 4 o'clock in the afternoon, 4 p.m., 3.30, 4 p.m. He would leave us home all the way till about like 9.30, 10. And the reason being is because, well, we lived in a San Fernando Valley, and my mom uh, in her nail shop was in L.A., and so my dad would drive down there in the evening to kind of clean up the shop, pick up my mom and bring her home. And it would take that long because, you know, an hour, hour and a half, whatever drive, depending on the traffic. And so here, me and my brother, we're chilling at home from 4.30, 4.30 to about 9.30, 10. And you would think, right, you would think we would get into all sorts of trouble. I mean, I kind of look back and I'm like, man, how, how did I not get in more trouble literally having anything to do with what I want. And, you know, when my wife's not here in this first service, she's getting the kids ready. She'll be here in the second service. She's probably going to think, because she doesn't know this, she's going to think, like, how did you not get, I know you. You should have gotten in trouble. Are you lying to the congregation right now? Like, no, right? I should have gotten in more trouble. And, uh, and so, I mean, it's a solid five hours of anything we wanted. I could have, we could have left the house. No one would have known. We could have had friends over in the house. No one would have known. I mean, anything. But what did my dad say before we left? You know, right, he, he would tell us, don't leave the house, do your homework, eat dinner by yourself, and be in bed before I get home. Those were his instructions, okay? Um, and for the most part, surprisingly, my brother and I did exactly that. We didn't leave the house. We didn't have anybody over. I did my homework. My brother kind of didn't, but I did my homework, right? <laughs> I did my homework. Uh, and uh, I ate dinner. We ate dinner by ourselves, usually around like six or seven o'clock. And before they got home, we were in bed. 
without fail for the, my, my whole high school career. And I think back at that, and I'm like, why did I do that, right? Like, what possessed me to not take advantage of just the liberty? Oh, I, I mean, my view of the liberty, right? That was given to me, and it was simple. Because my dad was the dad of the house. He had rules. He had the authority. He told me what to do, and I'm supposed to do it. And that's exactly what I did. I mean, not perfectly. I definitely did, you know, messed around a little bit, right? But for the most part, I listened to him because he was the authority of the house. And I knew in the back of my mind, his house, his rules. I want to do my rules, get out of the house. And he, he told me that, right? And I believed him, <laughs> right? I believed him. So I listened. What would you say is the authority of your life? Is it scripture? Is it scripture? What does that mean then, right? That means like how you think about money, how you spend it. It's not according to what the world says you should do with it, but what the Bible says. Or if you, if you look at the type of speech you have, the things you engage in or look at, the things you entertain in your mind, how you treat people, is that all controlled by what society says how we should do things and how we should live? Or is it under the submission of Scripture and what it says? Will you look to the wisdom of the world for the big decisions you have to make in your life? Or will you dig into the Word of God for biblical wisdom? Mining it to see, well, how can I make this decision that most glorifies God? And honestly, when you take a step back and for the most part, when you do some of that stuff, the world is going to say, well, you're foolish for doing what you're doing. But we're going to say, if we believe in the authority of Scripture and wants to submit under it, well, I know what I'm doing. What are you doing? By what authority do we listen to and obey? This is what the... This is what this first aspect says, the authority of Scripture. If we truly believe in it, if we truly understand and know that this is God's word, this is the submission we're to have to it with our entire lives. Now, this moves on to the next aspect of the doctrine of Scripture, the inerrancy of Scripture. As I suggested earlier with my experience in, in that high school class, when you, you know, when you have this commitment to the Bible, people are going to question it. People are going to say, well, it's riddled with contradictions. It's, it's riddled with error. There's, there's no way to trust the Bible. The, the whole process of making it is, you know, if you look at it, it's all man-made. Now, I want you to turn with me to Titus chapter 1. Titus chapter 1 is just a few pages over from 2 Timothy. Titus chapter 1. I'm going to look at verses 1 to 3 here. Paul's, he's opening his letter to Titus, and he says this, starting in verse 1 of chapter 1. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and the knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness in hope of eternal life, which God, see this, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. Paul's opening greeting to Titus clearly informs us a character about God that we cannot miss. God never lies. 
He always speaks truth. In fact, another verse that says the same thing is in Hebrews chapter 6, verses 18, and it says, it is impossible for God to lie. God's character is one of truth. He only speaks truth. If God is the author of scripture, everything in this book is truth. Everything about it. And so here's the logic, right? Scriptures are authoritative in our lives because God is its author. And we obey scripture because we obey God. And we can trust everything God says because all his promises, all his commandments, the gospel, everything, the history from the beginning of the world in Genesis to the history of Israel to Jesus' death and resurrection, all of it is true because God never lies. He speaks truth. And so we can trust all of it. It is absolutely trustworthy. There are no errors in Scripture. There are no contradictions in Scripture. We might need to do a little digging. We might need to step back and kind of really think about the context of Scripture and how things are written and understand the the historical time and what's happened in both the Old Testament and New Testament. And we might need to think a little bit, right? Even, Even Peter said Paul's letters are hard to understand, right? And so we might need to think through it and go, okay, like how does this all work? But there are no errors and there are no contradictions. Now, the reality is, we can say something like that. There are no errors, there are no contradictions, the Bible is completely trustworthy, and you're still going to have people, (laughs) you're still going to have people and say, well, you're foolish. It's not God's words, there are errors, you know, and there's a lot of mistakes there. Now, I can't get into all the details this morning, but allow me a little bit again to do some apologetics and to teach on some technical things, on some technical things about the Bible that we have in our hands, Okay. Because it is completely trustworthy and it is without error. And again, what people are going to do is they're going to point out errors and contradictions of the Bible and all this stuff. They're, they're going to generally point out the idea that, well, people copied scripture, right? And when they copy, they're going to make errors and whatnot and all this stuff. And, you know, to some extent, well, yes, the Bible was being copied. Okay, I mean, that's, that's, that's the case. If you go to the museums and you look at the manuscripts on the gas cases or whatever it may be, whatever you see on the internet, those are copies of the original, right? People made copies, and there are thousands of manuscripts that were copied all throughout, the, all throughout from Old Testament to New Testament, okay? And here's a, a very simple response. I'm going to be very nuanced in my approach here and, and general at the same time. I'm only going to look at the New Testament because unless I want to take an hour or two to talk about it, because I can totally geek out on this, by the way. Okay, <laughs> right? I can totally can, but I'm just going to confine myself just to the New Testament. All right, now, if you understand what's happening in the early church in the New Testament, people get saved, they're all in Jerusalem, right, and all this stuff, and then if you read through the book of Acts, what happens, right? They all scatter. Part of it was through persecution. They all scatter, and then there's Christians who bring the gospel, Paul being one of them, right, to multiple different regions all around the world. And so the gospel message goes out to all. People receive it. People believe. And they're all over the place. Okay? And, and as they're in these multiple different regions, they start copying the scriptures so people can have something to read. People can have something to know what God says for their lives. This is equivalent to saying we have somebody in here, California, somebody in New York, somebody in Australia, in London, Russia, China, Philippines, wherever it may be. 
This is the equivalent of having everybody all over the world, okay, right? And they're all making copies. The difference in the ancient time is they couldn't send an email or a text message or a phone call to kind of like collaborate and be like, yo, I'm going to change this in First Peter. Can you change it with me? Now, there, there was no conspiracy there. No one's collaborating together to change anything. They're just all separated and isolated by themselves all over different regions, and they copy the Bible. Now, when you compare all the manuscripts, okay, when you compare all the manuscripts, the difference between all these different regions, the difference is at most 2%. There was a difference. At most, the difference was 2%. But in those 2%, it's word order, right? It's they maybe missed an article like the. Sometimes there was like they maybe misspelled the word, but you still knew what the word was, right? It was insignificant changes. Completely insignificant. So of the 2%, less than 1%, way less than 1% was anything actually significant. And even then, even then, if there was some significant change, there was no challenge, no challenge whatsoever to any core doctrines of the Bible. There was no challenge to the fact that we are sinners in need of a Savior. No challenge to the fact that Jesus Christ is the Savior that he lived this perfect life, that he conducted all these miracles, that he died and rose again after three days to show his power over sin and death. None of that changes. All of that remains the same. And so, yes, there was some difference. But the difference was less than 2%. It was completely insignificant and affects no core doctrine and or the gospel and our need for a savior in any of it. And again, they couldn't talk to each other. So you look at all that. You look at all these different regions. No one's talking to each other. No one's collaborating with each other. They're all making these copies. You're going to go, oh, man, what we have is pretty reliable. What we have is the Bible. I can safely say without a shadow of doubt in my mind, what you hold in your hands this morning is God's word. It is God's word. And so we can trust it without fail. It is trustworthy. Now, we kind of have to ask the question then, okay, well, that's cool. How is that relevant for us? Thank you for that lesson, Pastor John. You geeked out enough. Now give me the relevance. Well, it's so important for us to affirm the inerrancy of Scripture, and I'll give you one major reason why, one major reason why. If there truly are errors in the Bible, that will automatically lead us to question the Bible. It will, allow, it will make us ask, well, where are the errors? How do we know what we found in, how do we know if we found all the errors in scripture, right? How do we know if we can trust the historicity of the Bible? In other words, how can we trust the history of what God says happened in, in the Old Testament or the New Testament is trustworthy? Maybe there was errors. Maybe there's an error of history. Maybe Jesus wasn't born of the Virgin Mary. Maybe Jesus didn't do the miracles. Maybe Jesus really didn't die or maybe he really didn't resurrect. How do we know where the errors are? It's going to lead you to skepticism if there truly are errors in Scripture. Which parts of the Bible can we truly trust? And at that point, if we're really skeptical and we're questioning what parts of the Bible we can trust, well, now we're questioning, well, am I living my entire life and following these commandments and obeying God in an area that's actually an error? And God never meant for that to be in there? 
You're going to question that. You're going to be skeptical. And at that point, well, why believe in the Bible? It's just a logical downhill. And it almost destroys faith, really, if you kind of keep on walking down that hill. If we don't believe in the inerrancy of Scripture, we cannot truly have confidence in the Bible. We want to be able to approach Scripture when we read it this morning or whenever you read it throughout the week. This is God's Word. If we walk in with doubt or skepticism, we're never going to listen to it. We're never going to listen to it. Now, earlier I said my mom owned the nail shop. Um, and if you know anything about nail shops, uh, most of the transaction is in cash. Okay, like, you know, you get your nails, you get your mani-pedi. I know a lot about nails, by the way. <laughs> I know a lot about nails. Uh, probably more than I should. Um, when my, wife and I, when my wife got married, I said, this is how I want your nails done, right? And I, and I told her, <laughs> but that's another story for another day. <laughs> but so my mom owns this nail shop, right? And a lot of the transactions in cash. And one day she comes home and uh, it was one of the few days where I was still up, uh, not because I was disobeying my dad, but more like I just kind of wanted to wait for my mom and see her when she got home. And she, she get, we get home and, and she gives me this $100 bill, right? She just gives me this $100 bill. And now I'm this high school kid, no job, no money. I'm like, yes, I'm rich. <laughs> okay, like, what am I going to spend this $100 on? And I'm just excited. And I'm, I'm you know, my mom's kind of like giggling on the side, <laughs> right? And, I, and, I, and I'm like just thinking, processing, what am I going to buy? And then slowly as I begin to like look at the $100 bill she gave me, I notice like there's tape on the corner, right? There's tape around the 100, right? There's tape on the corner. And I'm like, Huh, that's interesting. And then I look at the $100 bill, and I'm like, huh, I didn't know George Washington was on a $100 bill. <laughs> it's kind of interesting. <laughs> and I realized what happened is somebody probably took a fake $100 bill, cut off all the corners, and then cut off the corner of a dollar bill and taped the 100 on. Okay. And uh, it must have been, you know, busy at the shop or, you know, a lot of customers. And my mom just must have just, must have just taken it and kind of gave the change and, and moved on, right? I can tell you from that point on, my mom was very careful. <laughs> right? she, she checked every, every, I think it was $20 and up, she checked everything, you know, kind of made sure she took the time to touch it, feel it, look at it, do whatever, the mark, whatever it is that she needed to do. Uh, even to this day, like, I'm skeptical sometimes when I get a $100 bill. Like, my dad will, you know, say, oh, here's some, you know, money or whatever, and he'll give me some $100. And I'm just like, you know, it's like, it's like my dad, right? And I'm like, is it, is it real? Did you give me real? <laughs> like, I got a check, you know? Um, uh, and, you know, and so it, and my mom became just almost skeptical of what people handed to her, right? Because it wasn't the first time that that happened, right? Multiple times, right? People have given her counterfeit money, fake money. And that's the, again, that's kind of the idea. You know, if we're going to think there's something fake in Scripture, some errors, something wrong, that's, that's, the, that's the heart we're going to come towards with Scripture. We're always going to wonder. We're always going to check. We're always going to be on edge. But Scripture is inerrant. And that's why we have to believe in inerrancy of Scripture. We don't want to come with skepticism. Because I can tell you right now, if you walk with skepticism towards Scripture, you're really not going to listen to anything God says to you. Because, you know, the moment something sounds weird, the moment something sounds like doesn't sound really true or, it, or potentially it's a little hard, now it's, oh, well, that's the error part of this Bible. I'm not going to listen to it. But if the inerrancy of Scripture is true and it is true, we'll listen to everything. 
we submit to its entirety because it's authoritative and everything is written is truly God's word. Well, this follows on to finally the, the last aspect this morning of the doctrine of scripture which is the sufficiency of scripture. The sufficiency of scripture. And this is really where um, kind of, it's really a logical conclusion of both the authority and the inerrancy, right? And really it's, it's that scripture is more than enough for everything that we need in this life. It's more than enough for everything that we need in this life. If you, again, turn back to 2 Timothy, back a few pages, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, I want you to notice, again, the end of those few verses, right? All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. I think it's important for us to understand the scope of that phrase at the end, for every good work. Everything that you do in life, no matter how big or small, is always done in light of the worship and glory of God. To be clear, everything that you do, both big or small, either honors and glorifies God or it doesn't. It either fits in line with Scripture or it doesn't. Okay. So what that means is like the, the, how you think, the decisions you make, how you overcome trials and tribulations, how you overcome sin, how you're refined, how you talk to people, how you treat people, the attitudes that you have. If there's times of despair, how you're lifted up and incur everything, every single thing is found in Scripture in your life. All the answers are there. If it's God's word and it's his word to us and it's for every good work, that means it is completely sufficient for everything in life. And, you know, you kind of step back and think, well, what is every, everything in life? Everything. From the way you think to the things you say to how you do it. Everything. Now you're going to say maybe, well, well, does that mean the Bible actually talks about every single... No, it doesn't actually. The Bible actually doesn't speak about every single thing that you may do in life. However, however, it does provide... It either does speak about it or it provides principles. It provides principles. It provides guidelines to everything that you do in life. I mean, you can just read through the Proverbs alone and it probably <laughs> suggests how you should live your life. So scripture informs us, because it's sufficient, how to handle life. We don't need anything else. Nothing else is needed. This is why reading your Bible and studying theology is so important and it's so relevant to life. Because scripture is sufficient. Scripture provides for us everything. Right? For both the good and the bad. The better you understand the Bible, the better you understand the doctrines that are presented in Scripture, the more equipped you will be to live life a life glorifying to God. The less you know, the less you'll be able to do so. And this is and I'm not saying that everybody needs to be scholars. By no, by not by any means. No. We are all equipped, we're all able to read God's word and to understand generally what God wants of us and how to live our lives. 
You know, you see, if you think about it, right, it's not enough for the Bible to simply be authoritative and inerrant. That's great. Oh, God's the author and there is no errors, right? But we have to also believe in its sufficiency or what we'll do is we'll say, well, the Bible doesn't really talk about this area of my life, so let me go to the world. Let me go to my friends. Let me go to coworkers. Let me go to something else to give me information on how to live my life. But if the Bible is sufficient for everything in life, you don't ever go there. You don't ever go there. You just go straight to scripture because it's completely sufficient. Can those other things maybe be helpful? Maybe. I don't want to deny that. Perhaps. But it's, not, but it's never a, I need the Bible and I need this. Eh, it's just I need the Bible. It's the completely sufficient for everything that I am to do in life and to approach in life. Um, when the pandemic started, a little over a year ago, you know, I, I, there was this hobby that I kind of had beforehand that I, I really, I full engaged on it mom, the moment the pandemic started, right? And really that hobby was I started to eat more chips. Um, <laughs> I, I, those of you who know from some of my other sermons, I love chips, all kinds of chips. There are no such thing as bad chips, okay? <laughs> and when the pandemic hit, I just being home and, and sitting down and doing work in front of a computer and, and really not changing any position because that's, that's really all I had. And I just kept on snacking and it, I couldn't stop. I couldn't stop. I was breaking the bank because I kept on buying chips, you know? <laughs> and that's, that's all I wanted. And so, you know... During the pandemic, you know, I, I gained quite a few pounds from just eating chips, right? And so finally, after like maybe about a month or two ago, I said, okay, I got to really stop this hobby, okay? Like this, this, is, this is not good for me. Um, and, you know, I, I need to be a little bit more healthy. Uh, let me try to get rid of the chips and, and start to exercise again. And, and I just had all these excuses. Ah, well, I don't have a gym membership no more. I can't work out, okay? Or... Um, you know, or, or I don't have the latest gadget. You know, I need, to, I need to check my heart rate. You know, don't want to get my heart rate too high. <laughs> you know, I got to be careful. got to check take care of myself, right? And some of you may know that I've gotten into biking with Pastor Jim, and I'll go, ah, it's too cold in the morning. Who wants to go out on the bike? It's not, it's not the perfect weather for me. To, and I just, there's excuses after excuses after excuses. And really, when you think about it, right, I, all I really want is just to, to have a, a more healthy eating habit, and, you know, maybe lose a few pounds, right? And all I really need to do to do that is stop eating chips, eat a little bit more healthy, just do some simple exercises. Go run around the block, do a couple push-ups, do some body exercises. I don't need a gym to do any of that, right? I can just do the simple stuff, right? And, but I made all these excuses, and, and really, it, it took me a while. Like, well, what I have in front of me, which is, again, you know, just go run and eat some, stop eating chips and eat a little bit more healthy, control what I eat, and that's sufficient, that's sufficient to have a healthy lifestyle and lose a few pounds. I didn't need the gym. Would the gym be helpful? Sure. Sure, it could be helpful, right? It, would it be helpful to have a nice day out and ride the bike with, like, you know, not 15-mile-per-hour wind? Yes. Okay. Yes, that, it, it would be helpful. But is it necessary? No. Is it sufficient for me to be healthy to simply just eat right, stop eating chips, and maybe run a few times? Yes. It's completely sufficient. And that's the idea of the sufficiency of Scripture. Could other things be helpful? Sure. But do we need it? No. The Bible and the Bible alone is sufficient for everything we need in life. Everything. Now, we might need to search it a little bit. 
You might need to dig a little bit. You might need to read and, and study and, and try to understand the whole context of Scripture from beginning to end to help us to live this life. But that's the journey, right? That's the journey. Everybody starts somewhere, and we all, we're, we're, all, we're all on that journey. We're all still learning. We're all still growing. We're all still trying to submit ourselves under the Word of God and submit our entire lives to its authority, understanding that it's sufficient for everything that we do. And really, when you, again, when I, I'm just going to sound like a broken record now at this point, but as I try to bridge relevance, right, it, again, it comes to the idea of, like, is Scripture sufficient in your life? Do you look to Scripture for everything? Encouragement, trials, tribulations, growth, refinement, decisions, direction, guidance. Do we go to Scripture first? Do we do what Scripture asks of us, which is praying to the Lord, submitting to him, living by his word? Is that what we do? You know, my whole goal, really my whole goal this morning in the, in the doctrine of Scripture, yes, to apply that apologetics, but really is to bridge that gap of how relevant it is for us to believe in, the, in this doctrine of Scripture to believe in the inerrancy, to believe in its authority, to believe in its sufficiency. It radically changes how you approach Scripture and how you live life. Radically changes. Right. And so theology is not some, you know, thing that you that should collect cobwebs and stay in the back of your mind to never be ever visited again. Our prayer and hope for the pastoral staff is, is that not that you go through the, you know, the practical Bible doctrine books in your small groups and all these sermons that we're going to do in the next few weeks, right? It, it's not to just kind of get this taste and then never visit it again. It's to get this taste and, and whet your appetite and go, oh my gosh, like theology is life. Theology is life. Because my Bible is life. And I ought to know my Bible and I ought to live my Bible and let me glorify and worship God the way he wants me to glorify and worship him. And so, again, it was my goal and aim to, to light that fire, to give that passion, to give that desire to, to the pursuit of the truth of God's word and only God's word for everything that we do in this life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for all that you've given us. And we just pray, Lord, that as we dug into your scripture for a bit, as we explored this idea of the doctrine of scripture, as we listen to how scripture is authoritative, how scripture is inerrant, how scripture is sufficient for everything in our life, Lord, I pray, I pray, Lord, that it will be so true for us, Lord. In each, and of the, in each and every one of those aspects throughout the days of our lives, Lord, we fail to always see it. We fail to uphold those things. Our sinful nature causes us to sometimes forget or ignore. And Lord, I pray by your grace, in your grace alone, Lord, that you guide us, that you lead us, that you help us to see how great your word is, how true your word is, how sufficient your word is that we may live our entire lives all to your glory. Lord, we thank you for this wonderful morning. We thank you for this time of, of worship. And we pray, Lord, that it was a challenge to us in our own hearts. And Lord, that we can just simply trust more in you. 
In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. Well, thank you, brothers and sisters. You guys have a wonderful day. Love you guys all.